Thank you. I would never have figured that out. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav Tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. So in Kitisa, which is the name of this portion, so many things happen that there's no way to even talk about it in one, one sitting. It begins with the uh, with a continuing explanation in chapter thirty and thirty one about um, how to the final instructions Moses is getting about how to uh, create and prepare the tabernacle, the incense, the everything, right? And also the instruction that every Israelite is to pay a half shekel as a essentially a baseline tax to maintain and support the tabernacle. And um, at the end of chapter, and then um, in chapter 31, it goes on now to God introduces Betzalel, who we've talked about a lot in past years, a fascinating character in the Torah, Betzalel and his, um, and his assistant Aholiav, who are the ones endowed with the wisdom and skill to now fashion all of the blueprints that God has provided to Moses. And, um, uh, and that's a whole fascinating discussion in and of itself. And then at the very end of all the instructions, because these instructions have been going on for two and a half parshas, about how to build the tabernacle and make the priestly thing happen, uh, God says, and remember, keep the Sabbath. And so, just so you know, this is why the rabbis, when it said, you shall do no work on Shabbat, they said, well, what does it mean by work? So they went to the, they said, well, let's look what came right before this passage. All the, all manner of making for the, for the holy sanctuary. So the rabbis decided that work was anything that was done in making the tabernacle. And that would be the, what becomes known as the 39 categories of work in Jewish tradition. And they make that assumption because these, these passages are contiguous. They're next to each other. But furthermore, it makes sense that they, they, that's not a, just a random, oh, these are next to each other. It's deeper than that, which it took me years to sort of like get the cobwebs off my eyes, which is that if God made the world in seven days, six days, and then ceased on the seventh day, if you remember from our class last week, making the tabernacle is like making a microcosm of the universe. And so humans also need to not need to cease and rest and enjoy, and appreciate and their labor. And so it's a it's again it's an analogy with God's creating the universe and us creating this microcosm in which God can dwell amongst us. And uh, also just the very idea that you wouldn't make that that a Shabbat is kadosh is holy. So you don't make anything holy on Shabbat. Shabbat's already the sacred day. But uh, so there is there's an internal logic to all that that's quite fascinating that then leads into tractates of Talmud and endless, endless legal discussion about what constitutes work. But the the foundation text for the rabbis is whatever was done during these. If you sewed, 
to make curtains, if you wove, if you hammered, if you carried, if you any of those, all become what's known as the stuff that you don't do on Shabbat. Um, so that's, again, a, just a, a brief um, description of where we get to. And then, if you look on 587, oh, look at verse 16. You'll recognize this passage. In Hebrew it says, V'shamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. V'shamru v'nei That's where it comes from. This is where the passage comes from that we say every Shabbos. Uvayom hashvi'i Shabbat v'yinafash. And on the seventh day, God ceased from work and was refreshed. So that's where the V'shamru passage comes from. It's a really central passage in the Torah. And then verse 18 it says, and when God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the two tablets of the covenant, stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God. Hi, Emily. That's a dramatic ending because Moses has been on the mountain for how long? 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and so it says, and here he comes down with these two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? And then chapter 32 begins. because, But now you have to go back in time, 40 days. Um, because it's page 587. Because, or, or some close to 40 days. Meanwhile... When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come, make us get up, kum, make us a god who shall go before us. Ki Moshe ha'i, for that man Moses, which is one of my, the best lines in the Torah, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. This is so great. You know, they, they've completely... Moses is their only link to what took place for them. They think it was him. And um, so this phrase, that man Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And so they're panicked. It's like um, babies who haven't learned object permanence yet. You know... Mm -hmm. Mommy leaves the room, and mommy's gone forever, and the baby starts to wail. It seems just like that to me on one level. Um, and uh, Aaron said to them, You men, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold, and made it into a golden calf. And they exclaimed, Ela Elohecha. Um, this is your God. I would translate that as, these are your gods. Because right? it says, Ela, which is plural. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron pronounced, Tomorrow shall be a festival of the, of the eternal. 
Yeah. This is. I never get tired of reading this section. <laughs> but it's sort of confusing in that is it another God or is it a representation of God? And again, what, is Aaron complicit? Is That's one of the big questions. Does Aaron, in the plain reading of the text, Aaron's complicit. The rabbis want to rescue him. Right? And so the first thing they say is um, the people gathered against him. So the, the Midrash says that Aaron was basically saving his own life and playing for time. First he tells them to go get all their jewelry of their wives and children. They get it. So then he says, come back tomorrow. Right, so the Midrash wants to show Aaron maybe trying to like, uh, what's the word? Um, stall. But yeah. I thought the, the wives said, no, you can't have my jewelry. Um, that's why they, it doesn't say that they got, let's see, and Parkunis uh, may, and all the people, it can, it's ambiguous. Um, we've spoken about the Midrashic tradition that the women refused um, because they had faith. And um, uh, it doesn't say that explicitly in here. That's Midrash. But there's enough wiggle room because they're not told to. And then it doesn't say who exactly. Kol Ha'am, does that include the women? Or is that not? So the Midrash has some way to hang its argument on this, but it's, it's in the gray zone about the women. Yeah, it's never explicit. Um, and uh, so, so the Midrash basically says, maybe he, Aaron's stalling, you know, and he's, he has to save his own life, so he goes along with it. Um, but the plain reading of the text is very damning to Aaron, I would say. Um, Oh, and you were saying, who are they worshipping? Yes. Right, right. I, I seem to remember reading something that suggested that it was the same deity that they were worshipping, but they needed a representation of that deity. That interpretation, which is a legitimate one, um, goes along with, and I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the rabbis understand this to be happening simultaneously to Moses up on the mountain with God. So they infer that God, who knows what's going on, sees this going on and makes a decision to give Moses instructions to build this structure because the people cannot handle following something completely unseeable, ineffable, a cloud, right? Because that's, that's the metaphor for God, right? A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In other words, a cloud protecting them from the sun by day, a pillar of fire lighting the way and warming them by night, but clouds and fire you are there, but they're not there, right? And um, so the, the, the rabbis interpret that to mean that God, seeing this going on down below, says, I better give Moses instructions so that people can build something which will... Physically, they'll build it, they'll carry it, it'll be my presence, but it won't be an idol. Um, so 
yes, maybe it's the same God. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this, there's this very sort of subtle and sophisticated teaching that is part of the Exodus story that is the, the nature of Judaism, which is you shall not make a molten image or carve anything or paint anything to represent God because God cannot be contained in an image. God is imageless. Uh, it's contradicted. There's a, a, a brazen... The brazen serpent? Serpent. Uh, at least at that point it's contradicted, and that supposedly existed for, for many years. That's right. Later in the book of Numbers, when there's a plague, um, God instructs Moses to make a brazen serpent, a bronze serpent on top of a, sta- a, a staff, and that when people would look at it, they would be healed from the plague that was going through the camp, and the brazen serpent became an object of veneration, I think that's the word. And the seal for the AMA, right? And the seal for the AMA, right, the caduceus. Because that's a whole other story, isn't that interesting? Did you know that? Not really. Yeah, it's not just an image in the Bible, but that image turns up in other ancient uh-huh. Near Eastern cultures too, and around to Greece too, I think. So it's in the Torah, and it becomes the, the medical seal. The, uh, but in the Torah, it's a single serpent called Caduceus, and then I did a little research on this, uh, and the, the, the medical seal is like two intertwining serpents, but they have the same origin. Anyway, it becomes an object of veneration. It also says that they brought a jar of manna, um, not mayonnaise, right? <laughs> a jar of, a, jar of a, a, a container of manna with them too that became a, um, a relic. That's the word I was looking for in the sanctuary. And that later in the book of Kings, Josiah, I think it is, or maybe Hezekiah, is doing a purge of all idolatrous practices in Jerusalem and has them destroyed because he doesn't want people to be worshipping idols because this idea is that God can't be contained in an image. And for the same reason in the Jewish tradition, no one knows Moses' burial place so that no one can go to his grave and make it into a shrine because that's not, he didn't, that's not the way it works. So this is really a tall order because human beings, as we know, we naturally make altars. We naturally create like spaces that we venerate. We just do that. So that's why the rabbis at great length describe how God, therefore, created this sanctuary because they needed it and God understood that. Um, that's, am I addressing your question? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Just a quick, sequentially, yeah. has the work on the Mishkan begun? Uh, no. No, okay, so we just got a description of what God tells Moses to tell the people when he tells That's them. right. It's like a split screen, uh-huh. and, now, and now, meanwhile, back in the camp, and right. then, after this whole episode, then they're going to build everything. Okay. But, mean, it's not that Moses is on the mountain, and then this is happening. It's like these are happening, and they're going to converge right, right now. Right. right? And uh, the giant drama of Moses shattering these tablets is about to happen. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, in the Jewish tradition, it's a huge deal. It's, it's the, the people of Israel, after... 
um, the Red Sea and Mount Sinai had had become united with God. They were they were cleaving to God, and this throws them into spiritual exile. This this is a fall comparable to Adam eating the fruit in the garden, as far as the Torah and the Jewish tradition are concerned. Um, never a sin greater than the golden calf, and. Uh, um, you'll see phrases from the Yom Kippur liturgy where Moses will then go up and beg God to forgive the people. And God will say, Salachti Kidvarecha, which is one of the central phrases in the Yom Kippur prayers. I forgive you as you have requested. And so it's taken not from anywhere else. It's taken from this place where the people need atonement more than any other place in the Torah. So it makes it right into the Yom Kippur prayers. Again, I imagine that, say, a community that knew this story, like with their mother's milk, when they hear Salach on Yom Kippur, they're not just saying, oh, God forgave us. They're saying, hearing the whole golden calf thing. And like, we're getting a second chance because God is ready to disown us and wipe us out. So it's it's very dramatic phrase, not just of its own accord, but because of the where it comes from in the Torah. I was just thinking about that just now. I hadn't really put that all together. Is this before, before or after Miriam and Aaron? Before. Before. Oh. That's going to happen in the Book of Numbers okay. later. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, and it gets worse. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar. Um before it, and Aaron announced, tomorrow shall be a festival of the eternal. And so the rabbi is saying, he's saying under his breath, Moses, where are you? Uh, early next day, and they used the word early, the people got up early <laughs> and offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and they got up to dance. Now the Hebrew word at the end of verse 6, litzachek. Okay, so anybody know what that means? Litzchok is to laugh. Litzachek, Ishmael is a. Mitzachek at Yitzchak is mocking, but then it says, and Isaac was Mitzachek with his wife Rivka. So it's fooling around. So. It's clear to me, I would make a very strong bet that this refers to sexual um, revelry or orgiastic ritual or some bacchanal. They're eating and drinking and having a revelry. Yeah, more. More, because Litzachek has specific sexual uh, um, overtones in uh, Hebrew connotations, yeah. Interesting, huh? <laughs> it's some, there's some wild party going on. And then here we get to this great line. And Yodhevavi said to Moses, Hurry down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted basely. She hate destructively. So the people say, where's that man Moses who brought us out of the land? And then God says, 
that your people who you brought. I love this. Moses is definitely getting squeezed. Um, what is God, why is God saying it that way? It doesn't say, so it just opens us up again for the question. Is God disowning the people? Hi, Julia. Is God disowning the people? Is this just a literary device? Got to be more than that uh, to have this sort of parallelism. Uh, there's no single answer to this question, I, but I love raising it. Your, what God's saying, it's like, is this the... Now, for me, the, the sort of the most basic one is the parents who... Um, uh, dad comes home from work and the mom says, or vice versa, do you know what your kid did today? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's what's going on, personally. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, just like object permanence seems to be part of what's going on here... I think Moses and God are very parental figures in part in one of the ways this story is told. Um, but in the spiritual reading of this, um, well, let me read a little more, and then uh, I want to come back to this word lech red, get yourself down, because both the rabbis and the Jewish mysticism has a lot to say about this. They have been quick to t- um, verse eight. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined upon them. They have made themselves a molten calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it, saying, "This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." The Eternal further said to Moses, "I see that this is a stiff-necked people. Now let me be, or leave me alone." <laughs> that my anger may blaze forth against them and that I may destroy them and make of you a great nation. But Moses implored Yudhei and said, Let not your anger, Eternal One, blaze forth against your people whom you delivered from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. And then he pulls out every possible persuasive idea. Let not the Egyptians say it was with evil intent he delivered them only to kill them off in the mountains and annihilate them from the face of the earth. See, I I wouldn't, you know, let not the Egyptians say is a very nice phrase, but what what do you think the Egyptians are going to say? That's really what it means. They're going to say, oh, Yudhei the big shot, took out these people and then just wiped them out in the desert. Some god, huh? So he's appealing to God's ego, in my opinion. Um, turn from your blazing anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. And then uh, Moses turns toward remembering uh, Babi and Zaidi, basically. Remember, uh, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember the promise you made by yourself. <laughs> I love that. You, you swore to yourself, I swear to me, and said to them, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring this whole land of which I spoke to possess forever. And the Eternal renounced the punishment planned for God's people. So Moses talked him down, talked God down. Right? Yeah. When I read this, I wonder, if God is omniscient and knows all, is this a test for Moses? One of the tests that Moses goes through, uh, God knew what Moses uh, might say, 
God knew what the people were going to do. So that's sort of the way I'm thinking about it as a test for Moses that he passes with flying colors. Right. What's the test? I'm thinking like Sodom and Gomorrah, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Will not. Mm-hmm. The test, it, just as it's Sodom, God says to Abraham, Abraham is my friend. I need to tell him what I'm about to do. And is that a test for it? It's called, it's considered one of Abraham's ten trials. Because Abraham's job is to then step forward to God and say, God, source of justice, will you not act justly? What if there are innocent people down there? Here it's Moses' turn to be tested. God says, now, let me be, and I'm going to give them, give them hell. And that's, to me, on, a, on, just, on the most prosaic level, that's like when one person says that, uh, unconsciously or consciously hoping that the other person could say, hold it, hold it a minute, just wait a minute, calm down. That person is not, and that person will still be angry. No, get out of my way. And later they'll thank you. Boy, I'm so glad you didn't let me do that. You're a real good friend. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, because um, that's, that's the sort of, so on the omniscient level, it could also be God saying, okay, let's see if Moses is really ready to take these people to the promised land. Will he go the, the final yard for them here? Because he doesn't just say, leave me alone. He says, I'm going to destroy them and, so that I can destroy them and make you a great nation. Oh, this is a giant test for Moses. Right? Uh, yes, Julia. This is also, um, one thing you said made me think that not only did God know that this, maybe he would say that, but that this would be written and it would pass down through generations to teach people uh, how to, how to uh, use these wisdom in their life, how to have their relationship with God. And if it's said over and over through the Bible, it's not just for them, test for them, it's test for us too. That's right. The reason we study Torah is because we face similar tests. And uh, are we going to be like Moses? Um, moves like Jagger. Are we going to move like <laughs> Moses? Um, and, and yes, Moses is held up as the, the, the best, the best you could be. Never has a prophet arisen like Moses who knew God, spoke to God face to face. Never has a person this humble and transparent walked the earth. You know, like, yeah, Moses is the one we need to try to follow. And yeah. he says that his credentials. That's right. That's right. Moses has this intimate relationship with God, and I'm going to go there in a a few minutes. Um, uh, So, as soon as Moses has calmed God down enough, what happens next in verse 15? Thereupon Moses turned and went down from the mountain. And the word in Hebrew, Vayifen, in verse 15, uh, anyone who reads Hebrew, um, you'll, you'll recognize that uh, it comes from the same as pane, lifne, panim. So one of the th- words that gets repeated over and over in Hebrew between Moses and God is face-to-face or in the presence of. Or So the fact that it says he turns, mean, means you move, turn your face away by yifen, um, and uh, goes down means that Moses is leaving God's presence 
and now going to attend, that's the right word, pay attention to, attend to the people. Um, and he goes down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand. Um, and uh, they were inscribed on both sides um, with, those, with the writings. Um, the tablets, haluchot ma'aseilahim, were God's work. Hema v'hamichtav michtav Elohim. The writing was God's writing incised upon the tablets. Uh, now Joshua had been Moses' attendant these 40 days, sitting at the base of the mountain, and, or, and, or somewhere on the mountain slope, and Moses had gone up. So he meets Joshua, and Joshua, when Joshua heard the sound of the people and its boisterousness, uh, re'o, again, that's probably a good translation, but re'o has the root resh ayin in it, which means, no, resh ayin, ra. Yeah, and it's in its wicked behavior. Um, I wonder why the translator did that. Um, in their boisterousness, and they were, he, Joshua said to Moses, there is a cry of war in the camp. And Moses answered, in what seems to be a bit of ancient uh, doggerel, Ein kol anot gvura, ve'ein kol anot chalusha, kol anot anochi shomea. It is not the sound of triumph, nor the sound of defeat. It is the sound of song, I hear. Um, as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, um, he, he, he was enraged and he hurled the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Whoa. I, yes. The sequence of this is he, he's, he talked God down. Right. He lost his temper. That's right. He talks God down, then he goes and sees with his own eyes, and now he loses it. I can understand that. I can understand it, but... Because he, God he is... He just gave Moses all kinds of credit for being this amazing person beyond anyone else, and his ability... I'm so glad you brought that up, yeah. Because Moses' Achilles' heel is his anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it comes up over and over. It's the, one of the reasons, it's the reason he is not permitted to enter the Holy Land. And it's God is the mirror that then, it's like the mirror, God made man in his own image. Uh-huh. So or we make, here, yeah. Yeah, or we make God in our image, yeah, one yeah, or the other. If God has a temper, and then Moses also has a temper, they, they reflect each other, there's, there's a commonality. That's that true, that's true. So, but Harris is right. I just extolled Moses, but Moses wasn't perfect. Over and over, he gives in to anger. So even though in our tradition, he is, I think, rightly held up as the most righteous, because his anger is always in service, and this is interesting, of righteousness. He sees people misbehaving, and his anger boils. He doesn't just get angry over nothing. Right, the first time he gets angry is when he sees the Egyptian taskmaster beating the Hebrew slave. And he kills him. He, he does, so I'll just give you the rundown. The next time he gets angry 
is when he sees these bandits uh, messing around with Sipora and her sisters at the um, well, and he shoes them off. And then um, uh, uh, he also experiences despair when he comes back to Egypt and gives his message of liberation, and nobody can hear him. And he loses his anger with Pharaoh several times. He storms out, saying, so Moses, and then the final straw is when Moses strikes the rock after Miriam dies, when the people are demanding water, and instead of speaking to the rock, as God instructs Moses to do, and the water pours out, but Moses strikes the rock in rage, saying, you rebels, you want water? Here's water. And then God says, Moses, you don't get to enter the promised land. So anyway, what did you want to say? Just a second, Ann. Um, he comes down from the mountain with tablets from God. God never gave him tablets before. These tablets are central to our faith. <laughs> he had no right to break them because he lost his temper. Wow, good point. I would take Moses to task also. So I'm so glad you brought that up. So I just extolled Moses, and now here's Moses' dark side. Yeah. Moses? It, 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 it wasn't a, a no no. He didn't cut somebody's throat. That's, mo that's less than the Ten Commandments from God in a physical form. I mean, that's like an amazing once-in-a-lifetime thing, and he breaks it. What kind of rage is that? Good question. So, Jewish tradition asks that question just like you are, over and over and over again. All right, I don't need an answer. <laughs> I'm just, I'm no, but your, your question is the answer. What? What? And it's humanness. So the rabbis seek descriptions and explanations for what's going on. So okay. since you brought it up, I wanted to share some of the others that, that go along with the same question. I told out when you gave it. I'm sorry. I didn't give it yet. Oh. oh. No, no, no. I'm just saying it's like there is no single answer. You know that by now um, in terms of when we have a question about the Torah text, but there's no, there's no answers in the back. <laughs> in like a textbook because it's not a textbook instead the answers are in our hearts I think that's a very nice way of putting it and so the, the, the Torah commentary is when we look into our own hearts to say what's the answer to this dilemma so why did God allow Moses to do that why didn't he come to Moses and say Moses, remember your temper, or something like that. Why did he allow Moses? Right, another great I, question. I got, a, I got an observation. Oh, good. God. Uh, hold on. Uh, do we get to meet this puppy? Anyone allergic to dogs? No. no. She's hypoallergenic. Come on in. Uh, uh, Harris, I, I couldn't get my eyes off this puppy. Can you remember what you're going to say? Can you? It's really important. Maybe. Okay, wait, talk first. God had the power to see what was in the people's hearts, not their actions. He forgave them. Moses was not this that we give him credit for. He didn't see what was in the people's hearts. He saw the actions. He lost his cool. Very good. And what you'll find out from Midrash is Moses was both. Because Moses was human, Harris, and this is what I want to share with you, Moses is sometimes in that elevated state, 
and sometimes in this smaller, lower state of consciousness, because Moses is a human being. And that's what I want to share with you. So, hi, Marilyn. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Are you kidding? So, what's this puppy's name? Oh, my goodness. So, this was worth the trip, wasn't it? My dog was in the car. Is that his name? But before it was Dakota, it was Scout. So, are you in love already? Oh, yeah. And, and... Actually, well, she she's kind be. of part of your family because Nomi's the official godmother, I've been told. <laughs> she's just nervous. She's just nervous, yeah. She's just so little. <laughs> so nervous she's got to pee. <laughs> you can do with Johnny Carson now. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'll visit you sometime. Or pass him around, Marilyn? Uh, Marilyn, it's up to you. Yeah, no, she's... Oh, let me pause this for a second and we'll pass Sorry. the puppy around. Are you kidding? It's a puppy break. She's gonna, she's gonna travel. Yes. Anne, you had something to say. I did. I have always been confused about Moses breaking the rock and having water pour down. Because I thought that God told him to strike the rock and water would come. The first time. But then, mm-hmm. Moses did it in anger and took credit for it. Shall I bring water out of this rock for you? Right. So, um, so the point. That's right. That's right. He never mentions God, and he's and and God says, "Yeah." And that's a big reason, I thought, for him not being able to see the promise. Completely lost his humility. Mm -hmm. Hubris. That's right. A moment of hubris, and it can hubris is losing your humility, and when it happens, everything can come crashing down around you. But what you should know, Anne, is that for some Torah reason, the story about water coming from the rock is repeated twice in the Torah. First in the book of Exodus, where God tells Moses to strike the rock. Right now. This is the no, no, we're not in that episode. I was alluding to another time when Moses loses his anger. That's not happening here. It's happening in the book of Exodus several, quite a number of chapters earlier. So... The incident of Moses striking the rock happens twice in the Torah. Twice. Neither of them is in our portion. Twice in Exodus. No, twice in the Torah, oh. in the five books of Moses. Because we're in Exodus. We're in the book of Exodus. Exodus has 40 chapters. We're in chapter 32. He strikes the rock in chapter 16. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm saying that the episode in two different versions takes place twice in the Torah. Neither is in our Torah portion. Because remember, the Torah is divided into weekly Torah portions, and every week we're studying this week's Torah portion. This week is the story of the golden calf. The story where Moses struck the rock is in Beshalach, which was a few Torah portions ago. Why did he do it then? Um, he was just, it's very confusing, but he's just following God's instructions the first time. God tells him to strike the rock. However, when this story when this motif is repeated later in the book of Numbers, okay. in other words, we have a story that gets that in a different version. Think of folk tales. In different versions, the story gets included twice in the Torah. Once in Exodus chapter 16, and once in the book of Numbers. And the versions are different. They're slightly different stories. Like there's this version of Red Rock of Little Red Riding Hood, and there's this story, Little Red Riding Hood. Different versions of the fairy tale, different versions of the story. It gets repeated twice. In the second repeat, 
God tells Moses to talk to the rock, and Moses looks at the people, loses his temper, and says, shall I get water out of this rock for you rebels? And strikes it, and the water comes pouring out. It's the same incident. I never realized It's not that. the same incident, oh, because it's one... two separate incidents. Two separate incidents, but the same motif. Because one is happening right after right, the Egypt, right, right. the other is happening 38 years later. Okay, okay. Um, and why it's repeated exactly, we don't know why. Sure. But that's not what we're talking about today. I just wanted to clarify that um, level of um, factuality about that story. And um, Anne is correct. One of the reasons that Moses then, is, it's a failure, is because Moses says, I, shall I get what are out of this rock for you, you rebels? And all of that is like his downfall in terms of being able to reach the promised land. Actually, he was being what he was being mad about. Their um, rebelliousness. Rebelliousness and their self-righteous indignation. That's right. I'm righteous saying Moses regularly experiences righteous indignation. But he, he also, he was mad at what, it was a mirror again, the mirror. The people had righteous right. indignation. I want water. Where the hell is it? And then he had his. Right. And so that's what happens in fights. And in his best moments, Moses is transparent, humble. It's not about me. It's all about this mission. That's the best. And in his worst moments, he takes it personally. And a fight starts. Right? And that's the point, is that Moses is neither perfect nor flawed. Moses is both, just like all of us. And Moses is our model of how good, you, how humble and, and be a person of pure service you can be. But Moses regularly falls from that level and then has his terribly human moment, and then there are consequences. Mm-hmm. And that's life. And Mo- we are like Moses. Moses is, n- Moses is not consistent. Like a- Moses is human. And therefore Moses is always wrestling to become and be at the level that he would like to be. Mm-hmm. And then something external triggers him, mm-hmm. and he falls. Um, so, uh, Esther, you wanted to say something. Yeah. So, here's what I'm thinking. Moses talks God down from killing everybody. Then he goes and he breaks the tablets. And then he, well, we haven't read that yet, but then he does this terrible thing with the, with the Levites. Hmm. So, what I'm thinking is, Whoa. Moses, God, is allowing Moses to act for him. Like, he allowed Moses to talk him down. But eventually, his will will prevail. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Whose will will prevail? God's will. Because Moses is now, Moses has a full-fledged rebellion on his hands, and he musters the Levites. The Levites are the ones who who are the temple guard to quell, to crush the rebellion. And they kill a lot of people before things are calm in the camp again. So on one level, this is what happens. It's a rebellion. And are you going to crush it so that you can continue on your way to the promised land? 
or what what do you do uh, so there's this is like on the on the on the sort of political functional yeah. human level but on that grander level yeah. is this a divine design that Moses is now fulfilling by expunging these elements from the Israelite camp good question good question you, you realize I'm only asking questions. I'm not making pronouncements. Right. But isn't that why then the the is the Israelites spend forty years traveling through because they didn't want any of the offspring to remember this time? No, no. The that comes. This is not when they get condemned to wander. Oh, okay. That happens in a future rebellion. Okay. Where they do not. Where the scouts go to scout out the land. Twelve scouts. Yeah. They come back. Yeah, we just met scouts. They come, they come back, and they offer their report of the land. They all agree that the land is a good land. They bring back its fruits. This will happen in Numbers chapter, Shlachacha, um, chapter 13. They bring back its fruits, and they say it, the, the cluster of grapes was so big that it took two men to carry it on a um, frame. And those who ever see the Ministry of Tourism emblem in Israel, that's what it is. Because they were, t- they were scouting out the land and they all agree. But ten of them say, ten of the scouts say, they spread a, a damning report and they say, we saw giants there and we'll never be able to do it. And we looked at them and we, I'm quoting, we felt like grasshoppers. And so we must have appeared to them. And the people start wailing and crying and saying, let's go back to Egypt. <coughs> and, yeah. and only two of the scouts um, uh, say, no, 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 they're big, but we can do this. Have faith. Mm-hmm. And that's Joshua and Caleb. And uh, they're unsuccessful in persuading the people. It's a gi- another giant mess, at which point, as they're about to pelt Moses with stones, the God, the divine presence comes down and uh, says, stop. You people are never going to make it to the promised land. You're going to wander for 40 years until your carcasses drop in the wilderness. Uh, so that's when that happens. Um, it's quite the drama this story of how shall we say on every level one's personal journey and the wanderings we do because we're not ready um, political uh, odysseys you know um, I mean you know the US was founded in 1776 and it was basically it wasn't until after the Civil War almost almost a century later that the United States as we know it came into being you know that's how long the birth pangs are, if you make it. You know, and uh, so uh, there's a great book. Um, I haven't read it all. I just read the beginning. And one day I will read it all by a man from Israel, Yoram Chazoni, a political philosopher, about um, this story as a political story, yeah. if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. Because just like the Mishkan, which can recapitulate as a cosmic story or as a personal story or as a collective story. The whole Torah is like that. That's what makes it a great story. It resonates, right? It resonates on all our levels. That's what makes it a living 
You know, that's why we're that's why it's still around. Um, yes, Bruce. Oh, I'm sorry, Esther. I'm I'm done. I'm done. I'm just pondering what you yeah. said. The way that Moses takes initiative kind of gets me, in that I'm thinking of comparing him with Noah, where God said, "Do it." Noah does it. Right. Uh, Moses is not always right, but he does take initiative. And for instance, in what you were saying, in, uh, when the uh, commandments are brought down on the stones, God never tells them break them in front of the Israelites so they'll see. Right. Uh, he takes the and he's not taken the task for this. Uh, the covenant has been broken. Right. Uh, but. He also does other things, like striking the rock. Uh, and I think you'd probably make the case that when it's for the good of all, his initiative is acceptable. When it's his ego, it's less than acceptable. Oh, that'd be a nice thesis to pursue. Thank you. Very good, very good. So, Oh, yes, Emily, thank you, I forgot. Wow, that's a good one. So, shattering this is, and then the very next line it says, and he took the calf that they had made and burned it, and he ground it to powder and strewed it upon the water and made the Israelites drink it. Mm -hmm. That's some punishment, kids. Um, yes? <laughs> the, the stuff that happened after it, I can't fathom it's just mm -hmm. too much but if it cut off all the rest that we talked about and you just stopped right there the lesson to be learned what's the lesson to be learned one of the lessons to be learned about smashing that is that there's a higher power up there and he operates in a different way he doesn't operate like Moses's actions he operated in a different way he was able to come around Mm -hmm. before he took some action. Wow. Mm -hmm. well, so even though Moses did all this stuff, it was a lesson to be learned because what God, what God did, we learned from this crazy guy, from Moses, right? Moses told the story about his interaction with mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he, he, he laid out the picture. God, how God reacts in this situation, man, me, how I react in this situation, we don't do the same thing. Wow, wow, that's beautiful. So later in this portion, after things calm down in the camp, Moses has to go up to the mountain again and beg God to reestablish the covenant because smashing the tablets is, a, is an action that reflects what has transpired, oh, right? The covenant has been shattered, the one they just said yes to a few weeks earlier. And so Moses then has to go back up the mountain later in this portion and get two new tablets. First he has to beg God, and then he says to God, please, I need to understand you and know you better. Let me behold your presence. Yeah, that's nice. and, and God says, you can't behold my presence in that way, but I can give you, tell you my attributes. And then in the famous line, God declares God's attributes. Um, 
compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, full of loyalty and love, forgiveness, uh, and truth. And uh, so, yeah, so Moses then gets to glimpse what this divine nature is, but we try to, we do our best to embody it, but the ideal we, we sometimes attain, but only temporarily. And then we get, then we, something causes us to drop from that uh, peak place again. Um, but the ideal is what you're describing, and I'm thinking about how late, just later in this portion, God's going to ex- express this to Moses. Um, now, that gets me to this word in verse 7 that we saw at the beginning of this whole passage. God said to Moses, Lech red, get thee down, or red means descend or lower. And so, the rabbis are very interested in this word because first in the Midrash, they say, what does God mean, get thee down? Because for them, it's not just a geographical altitude issue, right? There's high and low, both as physical places when you're high. Levels of consciousness. Levels of consciousness. Because when you're up on a high point, you have the view. A high point gives you the big picture. When you descend, you lose perspective, right? So it's so the physical experience of, say, climbing a mountain and the metaphorical experience of being up at a high point are similar. Uh, so what is this descend? So in one Midrash, the, it says, so this is a couple thousand years old, the Holy One said to Moses, Go, Moses, get you down from your greatness. And so the rabbis say it's a symbolic descent. And I'm not in there. Okay. I'm in a book here called, take a look, Esther. Yeah. It's called The Book of Legends. And it's a collection of all the rabbinic legends about the stories in the Torah. It's one of my favorite books. Hmm. Um, they're mostly from the Talmud and uh, other sources. It gets you down from your greatness. It's because of Israel that I bestowed greatness upon you. But now that Israel sinned, what need have I of you? At that, Moses' strength was so depleted that he did not have a strength to utter even a single word. In other words, he was down. Mm-hmm. Right? He'd just been spurned, so he was down. So it's that kind of down in the rabbi's reading. But then, when God said to him, Now leave me alone that I may destroy them, Moses said to himself, So the outcome depends on me. I'd better do something. At once he rose up and prayed vigorously and pleaded for mercy. I I just like that one. So in that one, it's about Moses' internal condition. Right? As soon as God says, get thee down for your people have failed and I'm done with you, Moses can imagine. It's like a relationship they've been together. Right. He's saying, get out of my face. Get out of my presence. It's like losing your closest friend. Exactly. And, and Moses, in this telling, is so deflated, and he's so low, and then, but then he hears God say, and Moses, because he's Moses, says, wait, I can't allow my, I have to do something. And he rises up again to, to talk God out of 
that action. So that's one reading on it. It's a beautiful reading, isn't it? All playing on the get thee down. Now, in Jewish mysticism, descent and ascent are about, uh, are about your um, spiritual and psychological state also. So, um, in, in, the, in that reading, Moses, he's been on the mountain for 40 days with God. He's got tablets with God's handwriting on it. Moses, who is a spiritual seeker, is really high. Totally high. Like in the best sense of the word. Because he's one with God. He's hanging out with, with God. And God says to Moses... No, no, no. Now you have to descend from this state and meet the people where they're at. You can't lead them from here. Mm -hmm. This is the Hasidic take on this. You can't lead them from here. And so the spiritual leader, which think of that as all of us, okay? The spiritual leader's job is they can't hang out in the monastery or on the mountaintop all the time. That's not what we're here in this world to do. They, ha- they can't sit in their meditation room mm-hmm. or on their yoga mat all the time. They have to go be with the world. And how do you take the, elevation, the elevated awareness with you down to the world? Because that is the spiritual challenge. Right? Our spiritual awareness is, Wow, life is just a giant, wow, this is magnificent, love is everywhere, those are our best moments. And then we have to take that and translate it into our deeds. And that's the rub, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's why no one, no one can be in a permanent state of unity with God. Because we're always something, we have, we have... Rabbi Akiva, maybe... You had to come back down. You came, he was the only one that made it. You're right. Akiva, Akiva is held up to be like Moses. Um, and someone who was able to maintain... Akiva and Moses... Akiva is held up in our tradition to essentially be an enlightened master mm-hmm. who is able to hang out in our world of, just, of evil deeds and painful life and and still maintain, right? Um, but even Moses, so you're right about Akiva, but even Moses, and Akiva is compared to Moses in many Midrashim. Um, but er, how do you, so the question for the Hasidic reading for all of us is, if you want to be with the people, you have to get go down from the elevated state of oneness with God. Once you go down, you've re-entered the land of your ego, and then you're constantly going to be doing some kind of battle with it as you deal with your emotional reactions, with your selfishness, with your appetites, and try to manifest God's will. There's no easy way out. There's no easy way out. There's no easy way out in the Jewish tradition. I think that's reality-based. So God's saying to Moses, now the challenge begins. Yes. Now the challenge, you had 40 days with me up here. Up here, what challenge is there? It was great. A little child psychology with God. It's great, it's awesome. Now, yeah, now I hear the kid crying and screaming. I think they uh, messed their pants again. Let's see how you do it now, right? And uh, we have our better moments and our worst moments. 
And so that's a lot of the teaching about what this word down means. Uh, now, uh, uh, yes, Esther. I was just going to say that in, in, in modern day life, you know, you could meet with your cohort and make all these wonderful plans. Yeah. And your plans are really in abstract, but they're so great. And then you go down and you meet with the people and they smash it. That's to right. Help. Yeah. That's right. And even if we're not talking to God, if we're hanging out with people yeah. who we can just say, and then I'm going to do this, right. and this is what I want, which right. is what good friends are for, right? right? And then you get all excited, and then you try to enact your plans. Yes, life exactly. Life takes over. It's almost like a total, it's, it's like reverse yeah. of just hanging out down there. It's opposition to the... Right, so life is a challenge, and the Torah knows that. But life is also sublime. And the Torah knows that too. And so I want to now get to these tablets. What, what, are the, what, what does our tradition say about Moses casting the tablets down? What an action, right? The main midrash about this is really beautiful. It says, um, uh, oh, I guess I'll do it from memory. I'm not sure which one it is there. Um, the main redrush is that Moses, these were tablets inscribed with the finger of God. What? Think of that metaphorically again. It's mm-hmm. like, what is he carrying? And so the tradition is, he holds, it says, he's holding two stone tablets in his hand. And the tradition is that they, were, they didn't weigh anything. Because they, were, they, had, they had all the letters of God's of the divine inscription in it. As soon as he got down and the people had broken the covenant, covenant, the main midrash is that the letters flew off the tablets and returned up the mountain like sparks of fire. And they got so heavy instantly that he couldn't hold them anymore. Which is, I don't know, it's a beautiful metaphorical picture of what happens when... Uh, okay, Think about, it's a covenant. Think it's based on love and um, loyalty. Think about a marriage. You know, how you're holding it, and then if there's betrayal... And it all flies out the window. It all flies out the window. That's the metaphor in this uh, midrash, which I think is beautiful. And that's really going down. And he says to go down, but he didn't realize he was going to even go down further than he thought. Mm -hmm. Yes. You said they... The people had a covenant with God. Yes. Before the tablets. Mm-hmm. Yes, the tablets are the okay. Are the symbol of the covenant. What kind of a covenant relationship with God would we have collectively if we didn't have this or a Torah or a Bible or a Mishnah? So these people who are more primitive are expected to have a covenant. Well, let's not assume they're primitive. Okay, these people who didn't have printed words, right. who couldn't read, most right. of them, right. they're supposed to have a covenant with God when it's not written down? You know, what, is um, it, what, are they, what are they supposed to follow? A speech that happened a month ago? Great point. That's what Great point. Um, and yes, that's why Moses wrote all, all these words down. But it all happened so fast. So the people heard the word of God announcing the Ten Commandments, which is the heart of the covenant. And they say, we we accept it, we will obey, and we will heed these commandments. 
And then in Parshat Mishpatim, which is in pages, a lot of pages ago, but in time passing is no time at all from then to 40 days, uh, because right after this, he goes up the mountain. So this has all happened in 40 days. They have a giant ceremony. They, the elders go up the mountain. They, they do a whole ritual, and they say, God is now, we have accepted this covenant to fulfill these commandments to the Creator. Moses goes up the mountain then to get the sign, the physical sign of the covenant. In that 40 days that he's gone, all hell breaks loose. So, you know, I could be pretty critical of the people that they couldn't wait 40 days and remember that they just heard God speak. On the other hand, so, but you're right. It's like they needed a physical representation. They needed something that could be read to them. As people who were illiterate, they needed people who would be the spokespeople to teach them this. So that's all true. Um, and they had a willing, of their own volition, out loud, and with a ceremony, accepted the sacred relationship they were entering to, to fulfill the Torah. And then Moses goes up the mountain to receive the tablets, which are the sign, because remember, those tablets are going to go into the ark that is in the Holy of Holies. It's like, that's the symbol of the covenant. Um, I don't know if I'm addressing you quite, but I'm talking about what you're talking about. I just, and the pieces yeah. of the broken luchot were also in the tablet. So okay. this is very interesting. So Moses smashes the tablets because the, the, the divine sparks can't stay on this broken, uh, with having been betrayed. They fly up to back to the source. The tablets crash, and uh, this hell breaks loose. Moses quells the rebellion, and then has to go back up the mountain and beg God to give them all another chance. Finally, God, I mean, it's, I'm going quick, because I have a board meeting. <laughs> but finally, God, uh, 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 what, what's the word, uh, assents, and Moses then gets another set of tablets, but this time it's inscribed by Moses' hand. So the original tablet. so again, you see symbolically, what can humans handle? You know, I guess only a human written record, not something with divine light shining out from it. And Moses comes down with the second set of tablets, and the tradition is that the children, and this again is such a rich metaphor, image, uh, that both the whole tablets and the broken tablets were placed in the ark. So wholeness and brokenness travel together in the human caravan. Again, also being up and going down. It's mm -hmm. that the broken and the... In the, the broken sacred, and the whole, and right? The Isn't that something? This, the, 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 the sacred connection between the whole and the broken. It, may, it might have to do with humility. It definitely has to do with humility. It has to do with the human situation again, which is that our lives are paradoxical. Don't give up like Moses did not. He wanted to. But it's like it happened to me, the little sparks is no, don't just try one more, put your foot one more time, just give it one more shot. Don't give up. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm getting. That's right. It's like that, I can feel it. It's like everything fell apart, and now what? And, and you say it goes back up to all that? 
That's a big. Well, and also for us to remember. We have to remember that it fell apart and was broken. It fell apart, was broken, all hell broke loose, and he didn't give up. He put it back together again. It wasn't going to be the same. Broken and the whole get that made that. Isn't that something? That, that arc doesn't just, con- that they're carrying around in the wilderness, doesn't just contain the, the second set of tablets, but according to tradition, it also contains the broken fragments of the first set. So it's not the nice, clean, cleaned up version of life anymore. That's it's right. Like, this is it, man. This is it. Thank you. Bruce, yeah. did you want to say something else? Thank you. I don't you. know if we can get, get Two more comments, it, and then we'll stop. Uh, in 26... Uh, Verse 26? Yeah. I so that's on the next page. Yeah. How, how, how we deal with the tradition of this much violence uh, going through the camp and destroying one another? Oh, well, personally, and, yeah. How do we... Here's how I deal with it, because there's a full-fledged rebellion and a lot of bloodshed. For me, in the human situation, when humans have... Humans lose control and mob mentality takes over and great destructiveness happens mm. how do you contain the mob the rampaging mob what do you do and so again I don't justify this behavior but I see it Moses demands this behavior no no things Moses are Moses stood up again and said whoever's for the eternal Moses come. saw that the people were out of control right. and the Hebrew word is farua which yeah. means completely wild mm-hmm. and it's all order they just spent time Organizing, a, uh, trying to organize these slaves into a camp, and it's completely fallen apart. What's he going to do? So it's not pretty, but once things have gotten to this stage, what you want to do is try to. I mean, this is what I think about, especially these days. Civilization <laughs> is not a sure thing. We know it just by observing 20th century history, whether it's the Nazis or Cambodia or. You name the atrocity. Humans have the capacity to, and Syria right now, mm-hmm. humans have the capacity to abandon civilized behavior. Once that happens, what do you do? And this is what happens. Uh, you have a bloody result to try to restore civilized order. That's how I see it uh, when I read it. Um, and not as a good or a bad, but as... This, this is what happens in human affairs. Um, and Moses has, at this point, it's too late. There's no negotiation to be had. There's no, it's just too late. Yeah. And if this project is going to be rescued, this is, it's now or never. Mm-hmm. That's how I read it. Like weed out the, weed out the... the... More than weed out. Um, humans have gone crazy, yeah. as we have this capacity to do. At which point, they're not behaving like rational yeah. actors. You can't talk them out of it. Right. The, the mob has taken over. So this happens. And then what do you do? You crush the rebellion. Well, so he crushes the rebellion. Life is a mess. You know, but they have to get to the promised land. Should we give up on the whole project? <sighs> and? It's not important to know. I don't want to keep you. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi. Oh, my pleasure.